All right, well, we're going to get started today. Welcome to the Faith and Philosophy podcast. Um, just kind of want to start out by going through what made me want to do this in the first place, kind of while we got started. Um, it kind of came from just talking to people specifically about Christianity, but not just Christianity, but also just a kind of a metaphysical, maybe theistic worldview as well. And what I noticed as I would talk to people is the their opinions were not really grounded in anything substantial. You know, when people say that they don't believe in, in this or that, usually it's because of a, a documentary or some clickbait or they had a bad experience. You know, it wasn't really ever anything that was actually like vetted out. And I'm not saying that everybody's like that, um, but a lot of people, it wasn't as if they go, look, I've genuinely sought through this. I've genuinely given it a chance. I've studied, I've verified. Like that's usually not the case. So what I wanted to do was just create a platform where we could have objective conversations about the reality of what Christianity actually is. You know, people have such a misconception on what the Bible says, and I would just like like to give grounds to that. You know, but nowadays I just one thing that I constantly see is I don't think people genuinely approach truth. Nowadays people are so we're kind of very subjectively minded towards truth. You know, the Bible says that Asking it shall be given to you. Seeking ye shall find. Knocking it shall be opened unto you. God challenges us as humans to go, look, if you genuinely with your will seek truth and want to understand, he goes, I will reveal it to you. But I don't know if people have actually given, um, you know, Christianity in essence a chance in regards to that aspect. You know, the Bible also says in Psalms, it says the fool has said in his heart, not in his head, but in his heart, there is no God. God doesn't challenge. He challenges you, ch- challenges you intellectually, right? He gives evidence. He gives, he gives substance. He gives all these things for us to put our faith and trust in him. But he goes, at the point when a man sees all that, but he still chooses to deny me, he goes, that man is a fool. And nowadays, there's this, this crazy concept that as humans, we're just rational beings, that we only operate according to reason. And I just don't think that is true. I mean, even in my own life, I mean, I can tell you multiple times where I did not act according to reason, where, where I acted specifically off the cuff emotionally. It wasn't right what I did. I mean, I mean, we don't just operate logically 100% of the time. The Bible in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19 says, you know, it talks about a people whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. means that they only believe in things, they only put faith and trust in things that sit well with them. And, you know, I've always said that truth may taste bitter to some and sweet to others, but regardless of the palate, you still got to swallow it. And that's how it is. And I think people just have a, a, they'll kind of excuse Christianity with just statements, you know, and they'll just kind of throw these statements out. They're not backed by any kind of evidence, but it sounds good. And so therefore, you know, therefore Christianity is just not true. As long as there's just a little bit of doubt. People will dismiss it. And I just think people have the wrong view of what it actually is. I think people have the wrong view of what faith means. The definition of faith, I think so many people have a misaligned definition of that. Faith is not something that you just plug in when you don't have an answer or when you don't have evidence, right? It's like, I don't have enough evidence for this truth, so I'm just going to have faith. That's not the meaning of faith. You have faith in things every day of your life, right? You have, you have faith to put trust in certain relationships you have, that they're not going to hurt you. Right? You put faith in a lot of things, and what it is is it's not, it's not based on you not having an answer, but it's based on the evidence that you've seen. Right? You have faith and trust in someone maybe babysitting your kids because 
because in time has passed, they have proven that they can take proper care of them. So you, you have faith and put trust in them because of that. Not because there's somebody random or you've never met them, so you just have to have faith. Faith is the glue that holds our reason and truth together in spite of our human subjectivity. That's what faith actually is. And so, you know, as, as a Christian, I'm not just throwing faith on things, not looking at them, not vetting them out to see if they're actually true. And I think that secular people need to understand that as well. And nowadays, you know, our approach to truth is so important. And I'm just going to hit on this for a second. But you have a lot of victimization that goes on nowadays because people won't admit the truth of certain situations. In other words, people are acting in a certain way where they're going to have repercussions for their actions. But they're lying to themselves, telling them that themselves that it's not wrong. But they're confused because they keep experiencing the negative consequences of those actions. God says in the Bible that whatsoever a man soweth, that also shall he reap. But what happens is, is there'll be people in those individuals' lives who will tell those people the truth that those actions that they're making are, are wrong. And what happens is, is because there's no truth and the individual doesn't acknowledge that, they'll actually see the one that is telling them the truth as the enemy. And it's a constant state of victimization. And that's where we're at nowadays. There's just no accountability. And I think that we need to have a proper approach to truth if we're ever going to get anywhere. You know, I don't, I don't know if I mentioned it before, but I don't just read Christian, Christian like novels or Christian books or, or religious texts. I mean, I try to read everything to make sure that I'm looking at it objectively. So basically with this podcast, I just wanted to have a platform where we could have objective discussions about what religion actually is, what Christianity actually is. And just as a, as a first tip too, because this is what a lot of people talk about um, when we speak to them about the issue, is that, look, you have to go to the Bible. You have to go to what the Bible says. Stop going to people. I hear so many people, what about the Methodists? What about the Baptists? What about the Lutherans? What about this? What about that? What about this? You know, and, and they make a lot of statements. And it's like, look at what God himself actually says, right? Look at what God actually himself says. And I, I know you kind of put that standard on me and say, well, Tyler, you're asking us to listen to, you know, what you're saying on here. But I'm not, I'm not, coming at it with the approach of going, I'm infallible, right? I'm saying, look, you need to go to the Bible and fact check me on whether or not what I'm saying is true. And it's like, stop going to people to try to understand what God is trying to reveal to you. You need to go to the Bible itself. You need to go to the Bible itself, right? Everybody's like, well, that's, you know, we can't go to the Bible because that's man's interpretation. It's like everything is man's interpretation. All the books you read, the news you watch, right? The, the social media you look at, that is all man's interpretation of reality. But you're going you're gonna to dismiss the Bible? It, just, it, does, it doesn't make any kind of sense, right? And man is not the standard. Nowhere in the Bible did God go, you need to look at mankind because it's perfect, right? No. Mankind got, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Mankind is not the standard. Christ is the standard. Even Nietzsche said that Jesus was the only true uh, Christian that ever walked this earth. So I would just encourage you when you're looking at these things, go to the Bible, go to what God actually says, and then vet that out for yourself. Stop looking at, you know, it's not bad to, to get counsel or opinions or, or, or learn from other people, but you need to go to what God says to understand that. So today I'm just going to hit on two specific things. I want to talk about conscience today because I think it's one of the biggest testimonies to the fact that God exists is the fact that we have this thing called conscience. And I want to talk about it in two specific areas. I want to talk about it in relation to the meaning of our lives. And I want to talk about it in relation to the, mor the moral aspect of our lives. Okay? Human life is complicated. You cannot deny that. Human life is extremely complicated. 
It's based on a series of problems, issues, a whole host of things that we struggle with. And this is because we have a conscience, right? I want to read a, a quick little uh, portion of uh, one of Jung's books. Give me two seconds here while I flip this. He makes this statement. He goes, to the psychologist, there's nothing more stupid than the standpoint of the missionary who pronounces the gods of the poor heathen to be illusions. But unfortunately, we keep blundering along in the same dogmatic way as if what we call the real were not equally full of illusion. Right? A lot of people say, well, you know, Christians, you need to get your head out of the clouds. You need to stop. You know, you need to just come back down to reality and all these kind of things. But Jung admitted the fact that, look, reality doesn't have all the answers either. Right? You can strip God out of everything, but it's still, there's still the conflict of conscience. Right? And, and we take that back to the fall. We're going to talk about it here in a sec. But in the fall, you know, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And what they did was they obtained a nature that was contrary to how they were originally created. And your conscience testifies that you were created with an original nature that you are now different from. And this is where we really want to, um, you know, the point of discussion for today. We have no foundation nowadays for the values we have desire for. And I think that's why this next generation, you know, these kids, you know, they struggle with meaning, identity, morality. We struggle with all these different kinds of questions because we innately within the realms of our conscience have these desires, but we have no, no foundation to ground them in. And it's very dangerous. When you try to fit everything into a naturalistic kind of framework, it becomes very dicey. It becomes very sketchy. It becomes very confusing. You think about suicide. It's crazy to think, you know, I, I mean, it, what a danger that is and what a terrible thing that is when a person cannot find any justification for their existence. And it's not always a physical thing. You know, it, it, it's, you know you'll have some people where it's like they're, they're physically okay, they have talents, they have a future, but they cannot justify their existence of their individuality, of their humanness, right? And their only justification comes within the realms of the right they have to take that life. It's a crazy thing. It's not like we're just um, animals where our, our lives are specifically attached to our physicality. We can differentiate between the two. I can, I can separate who I am physically from who I am as a person. Where does this come from? Where do we have answers for this? I love reading Nietzsche and his will to power, and I haven't read the whole thing. I'm still working on it, and I'm not an expert on, on where he's coming from. I know there's people that have studied him a lot more than I have. But it's very interesting in the beginning of that book to listen to how he describes Christianity and, and to listen to, I mean, he attacks it later, but he talks about Christianity being the, the reason for nihilism or the belief in valueness. Because he goes, when you posit these moral standards or these moral values, these specific Christian values in life, and then you find out rationally that those values don't exist, you then have no meaning for your existence and it leads to nihilism. Which I obviously don't believe because I believe those values are connected to life. But he makes this statement, he goes, man loses faith in his value when no infinitely valuable whole works through him. Right, mankind, we have to have a context to our life. We have to have something that we can derive value and meaning from. It's why a lot of these guys like Jordan Peterson, they pound on responsibility because responsibility breeds value. It breeds meaning. It gives meaning and essence to your life. And we need that. He talked about in regards to the Christian faith, how it gave man an absolute value. Because God created you as an individual. He loves you as an individual. And he has a purpose and plan for your life. 
right? And without that, you know, you find your individuality in the collective, your value in the collective. It leads to socialism and communism and a whole host and arrangement of bad things. And he admitted that, that the Christian faith added that to humanity. And I believe that to be true. And obviously he took the, the other side of it by trying to attack it that way. But I believe in that. I believe that God does give us value and our value derives from him. And we need a context in, in regards to our life because of the problem of conscience. Mankind needs a meaning. I encourage everybody to read the book by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. It's an amazing book. He was a Holocaust survivor who spent multiple years in concentration camps. And it's really the psychoanalysis of what a human being went through mentally as he went to the camps. And obviously he hits on it physically as well. But he talks about just the strain that was on them physically. It's insane to imagine what they went through physically. He talks about how, you know, people will make statements how, you know, I couldn't go a day without caffeine or I couldn't go a day without food or this or that. But he goes, you would be surprised what man can live without physically. But if you read it though, he talks about the, the real strain was the mental aspect of it, the psychic aspect of it, where where it was trying to find meaning enough to pull through that situation. That was where the real struggle was. And when a man is stripped from everything materially that he has, what else does he have to live for? It's At that point, it's not just about the preservation of, of his physical body. He has to find meaning out of the situation for him, his existence as a human. You know, a lot of people say that and he mentions it, but meanings and values are just defense mechanisms, biological defense mechanisms and, or reaction formations. But he goes, I wouldn't live for a reaction formation. I wouldn't live for a defense you know, mechanism. But he goes, men and women will live and die for their ideals and values because they are so powerful. He talks about his comrades and how they would, they would, they would get worried because they're like, if we don't make it through this, if we don't survive this, then this suffering has no meaning. But he took the opposite approach. He goes, look, if my life's meaning is based on my survival, then it has no meaning in the first place. So he tried to find suffering within, within um, or meaning within that suffering. It's a really cool statement when, when we can't change our circumstances, we are confronted to change ourselves. But why? Right? Those, those, those individuals were confronted with a whole array of just terrible, terrible circumstances. But in that, they had the choice of either going primitive or retaining their human dignity, and he talks about that, and it's a crazy thing. He also makes the statement that the existential frustration, right, this question of meaning in our life, it's not pathogenic, it's not pathological, it's not a mental disease, it's an existential struggle. It's an existential desire that we have. It's metaphysical. It's beyond ourselves. We don't have a natural explanation for it. And we have to realize this. You as an individual require meaning from your life. Well, where does that come from? Jesus Christ said, I come that you might have life and life more abundant. He said, drink of the water that I give you and you'll never thirst again. He told his disciples, I have meat that you know not of. In Matthew chapter 4, he makes an amazing statement. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He goes, mankind has more than a physical life to sustain. There's another side to man that needs sustaining. So first, just a brief kind of little excerpt there on why you have to have meaning in your life. And that meaning is derived from God because he created you in his image, right? And we, we obtain our value from that. But second of all, I want to talk about morality in relation to conscience, where that moral aspect inside you comes from, right? Now, why are we talking about this? When a lot of people talk to me about Christianity, they don't like the moral aspect of it. 
And the Bible says that. The Bible says that this is the condemnation. Lights come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Right? People don't like the fact that Christianity comes with a moral standard. And it's more than a moral standard, right? It doesn't like that Christianity convicts us of, of the way we live our life and it requires us to die to self. We don't like that at all, right? But that doesn't mean that it's not true. That doesn't mean that you can't vet it out just because it doesn't sit well with you. And what consciousness is, is it's the testimony in every human of the moral framework in which he was created. But a lot of people look at conscience in a positive way, when in reality, through a theological framework, it's a negative thing, an extremely negative thing. If you go to Romans chapter 2, the Jews, in relation to Paul's letter, they were talking about, look, we received the law from Moses, but in, you, you know, you've heard the Ten Commandments, you know, and, and they're talking about the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. How do they derive their morality from? You know, if they don't have the law, where do they get their, their moral framework from? And God literally says that their conscience bears witness to the law of God. The moral, the moral feelings inside of you, right? You were created with a spiritual blueprint of morality, and that was given to you by God. And even without the Bible, it testifies to things of God's law, of the Bible itself. And a lot of people say, well, isn't morality just evolution? Right, things that, that we created to benefit us so we could survive. It doesn't make sense to say that. Because a lot of times, the feelings and emotions we have innately do not benefit our self-preservation. You think about the Titanic or situations of immense distress where people gave their lives for the lives of others. But if life is just naturalistic, then what in the world, why, why would they do that? It makes no sense. What's the meaning of their self-sacrifice if there's no meaning, if there's no moral aspect behind it? Right? We have welfare programs. We don't, we don't euthanize the elderly. Right? We, have, we do so many things that are against this concept of survival of the fittest or natural selection, and it's derived out of the moral law that God implanted in us. If you go back to, and you got to go back to Genesis for this, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, and I'll turn there now, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, the Bible tells us, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of the tree of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die right what i want to focus on here in regards to morality because everybody's like i don't want to be a slave to god you know i want to be free to do what i want to do look god gave these individuals personality freedom right? Free will in the Garden of Eden. He just said, don't eat of this tree because it's going to kill you. It's going to kill you. God has a reason for why he says things, right? Sin has a consequence. It has negative repercussions to us. So God let them retain their individuality and God gave a reason for his, his command of obedience. And at this point, they knew their origin only in God. Notice how it's the tree of good and evil. Right? He said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At this point, their whole essence of their being, all they knew was God. They were naked at this time. They didn't even know they were naked because they had not, there is no such thing as self-reflection up until this point. But you think to yourself, like, why, why good? That makes no sense. Right? Isn't good good to know? Why didn't you just say the tree of evil? Well, good is a subjective word. Good implies antithetically that there's something called evil. It's a comparative word. If you say dinner is good, that means it wasn't bad. And so God goes, if a mankind knows good, he inevitably knows evil. 
But in the knowledge of God, there's no comparison. When a man knows God, there's no such thing as evil. There's no such thing as a comparative. It's only good in its whole essence. So they were safe in their knowledge of God. And obviously, as you read on, if you go to Genesis chapter chapter 3, Satan tempts Eve to eat of the fruit. And he, and he gives this reason. He, he says in verse 5, he says, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He goes, God just doesn't want you to get eye level with him. right? If you eat of this, of this fruit, you'll know the things that God knows. And he just doesn't want you to be like God's. And she saw that the fruit was good, it was to be desired of, it was pleasant to the eyes, and she ate of it. But then automatically when she eats of it, in verse 7, and the eyes of both them were opened because Adam ate of it as well, and they knew that they were naked. The moment they disobeyed God and they obtained the knowledge of good and evil, they finally looked on themselves. They, for the first time, saw self. But the deception was that, that the devil told them you'd be like God, which is true. They became like God, knowing good and evil, but they became against God. They obtained a nature that is contrary to who God is. And they knew they were naked. They obtained self-reflection, but they immediately knew by looking on self that self needed a covering. They experienced for the first time, humanity experienced shame. And shame requires a covering. Mankind constantly through religion and through um, humanitarian efforts tries to cover our wicked nature, but it's not enough. It's not enough to cover us. And shame testifies to our disunity with God. There's something different from the origin of how we were originally created. And if you read on through the chapter, they're exiled from the Garden of Eden because they're separate from God. If you read on, Adam and Eve, actually, when God comes to have fellowship with them in the Garden, they hide themselves because they know that they're different from God. Mankind doesn't want to approach God. He, God comes to man, but mankind does not come to God. He doesn't seek him because he knows there's a difference. He's ashamed. So that's where shame comes from, and shame requires a covering. But mankind now, Adam and Eve, retain what's called conscious. Shame is disunity of man with God. Consciousness is man's disunity with himself. Consciousness is not a good thing. It always comes in the form of a prohibition. Don't do that. You know that's wrong. That's not what you're supposed to do, right? It creates a constant series of conflicts. I love how June talks about it. June talks about con, um, conscience in his book. It's amazing. He says, Our psychic processes are made up to a large extent of reflections, doubts, and experiments, all of which are almost completely foreign to the unconscious, instinctive mind of primitive man. So what he says is, look, you have a nature inside of you that seeks to perpetuate itself. Unconsciously. If you look at toddlers, they live based on instinct. They don't, they don't have a very broad view of consciousness. They bite, they kick, they scream, they cry because they're acting off of their nature. But over time, as you discipline them and you give them that external limitation, eventually they'll have what's called an internal conflict, right? An internal conflict. And June states that man's turning away from instinct, his opposing himself to instinct, that creates consciousness. And it's a problem. It's an extreme problem. Because the problem is man wants consciousness to play God. He, mankind wants an, an irrevocable decision to be made from their conscience. Because what happens is, when my instinct seeks to perpetuate itself, but there's this thing inside of me that says no, it doesn't create clarity, it creates fear. It creates conflict, it creates confusion. And it's hard to act in a manner of, I know 100% for sure that this is right. And that's what the Bible calls the law of sin and death. Man becomes his own judge. 
because man thinks his origin outside of God is himself. I'm the origin of my own good and evil. And that's a dangerous place to be. Because if you think about it, every time that there's or conflict, excuse me, we take it to a judge, right? When people can't resolve issues, they take it to a judge. Well, internally, when you cannot resolve issues, you go to a judge, but the problem is, is without God, you think the judge is yourself, but you are an inadequate judge to make those decisions. And in conscious, it, 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 it doesn't try to seek problems. It tries to avoid problems. And the problem is, is look, you identify yourself with this inner conflict and your whole life becomes a, a, a form of self-reflection, right? A self-preservation. I got to find myself. I got to find who I am because you're trying to overcome the disunity within yourself by your own efforts, but you can't do that. That's where Christianity comes into play. And God says, look, that old nature, that self, that conflict that you have, that has to die and I'll give you life, right? That has to die and I'll give you life. And, and there's a lot of problems that come into play when you look at it just from yourself because when we look at consciousness, we're trying to solve problems based on an individual basis. We're not thinking of a universal scope. Right? That's why people get so petty about morality because they look at truth in relation not to a universal whole or God. They look at it in regards to themselves. How does it sit with me? How does it reflect upon myself? And that's why mankind does not want to come to God because he goes, look, the answer is not fixing it because you can't fix it. That's why Christ had to die because in order for us from the fall, right, for all have sinned as by one man death entered into the world Right? Adam, Adam sinned and he, and he caused the wages of sin is death. The payment of sin is death. Death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. The only way for us to get back to God is to willingly die to self. But no human being can do that. That's why Christ had to come in the flesh. He died to self. He made that sacrifice that we couldn't make. So by putting our faith and trust in his death, but not just in his death, because there's life beyond the death of self. Without the resurrection, you'd think, I can't die to self. I can't allow myself to... to to die because of the fact there's no life after that. But God says, no, no, that's when you find life. Jesus Christ said, I, I come that you might have life and life more abundant. God says, he that hath the son hath life and he that hath not the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. God wants to give you life through Christ's sacrifice. And that's where we find true life. The Bible says in Romans that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. God goes, what happens is, is that old nature inside of you dies and I'm going to give you a new nature that can actually do good, that can actually experience life, that can actually live for me and act as if you were how you were originally created. It overcomes consciousness. And so that's the basis of, I just wanted to give a brief kind of thing there because what happens is, is when people look at Christianity, you know, morality is just a, it's just a power thing. You know, you, you just want to exert yourself over me. You just want to, you just, you just think you're better. It's like, no, 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 there's no good in myself. Myself had to die. It's Christ is my only good. And so I can't, I can't be puffed up and think I'm better than everybody else, right? God sees sin as sin and he sees sinners as sinners. But the Bible says this is a faithful saying that Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's why God died for us, to give us life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's the life that God seeks to give you. And God says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's where life begins in the death of self. 
um, in the next podcast, I'm going to include some of the uh, my social media information so we can connect there. I'd love to have a conversation with you in the future. Um, I'd love to talk through things. My whole goal is just to have conversations on a platform where we can genuinely seek this stuff. And I just uh, thank you for listening. I hope you have a great rest of your day.